Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. We're back here at ABWE. I'm Alex Kochman, joined by Scott Dunford, and a friend of yours, and I'd say a friend of ours now at this point, too, after we spent some time together in Louisville. We're, we're super excited to have Chris Bruno with us today. Scott, would you introduce him, tell our audience about him? Yeah, I'm excited to have Chris Bruno joining us. He is an author, has been a pastor, currently a seminary professor at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, he's written several books. Uh, God is One. He wrote the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses, the whole message of the Bible in 16 words. And uh, then he also wrote Churches Partnering Together, Biblical Strategies for Fellowship, Evangelism, and Compassion. So, Chris, we're glad to have you on. Yeah, thanks, Scott and Alex. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, really looking forward to the conversation and to seeing where uh, where we go together today. Could you just take a moment and just kind of tell uh, our audience a little bit about your background, family, and kind of the ministry journey you've been on? Yeah, sure. I'll keep it short. I grew up in the uh, great state of Michigan, home of the uh, Tigers, Lions, Wolverines, etc. Bears, and, oh my. Uh, no, not the Bears. Not the bears. <laughs> <laughs> grew up in a home where I heard the gospel. My parents are believers, and I grew up in church and Heard the good news and came to Christ when I was relatively young. And uh, my high school years felt a sense of calling toward ministry. And so attended the late great Northland International University, then Northland Baptist Bible College. From there, I spent a couple of years in Minneapolis doing a pastoral apprenticeship at Bethlehem, where I am back now. So that's kind of a, a sweet providence to, to be back where I started in many ways. Finished my master's degree at uh, Southern Seminary in Louisville, another degree, PhD at uh, Wheaton College, their graduate school, and then headed out to uh, Hawaii to be in pastoral ministry and uh, lead a pastoral training program for several years. And during that time, that I really got a, a sense of what local church ministry is like. Uh, although it's not, I, I want to call it missions or missionary work. It, it is cross-cultural work. So I loved being uh, in an environment with lots of different cultures, people from east and west kind of coming together. So that that's a sweet place for us. And we still have a lot of connections there. We came back to the mainland to help at Northland, where uh, Scott and I worked together for a little while. And uh, after that project ended, we bounced around a little bit, but uh, have found ourselves here at Bethlehem, where I'm teaching biblical theology and Greek and New Testament and equipping men to deploy them all over the world for the sake of the gospel. So that's kind of my uh, my ministry journey. I'm married to Katie. Uh, we have four sons who are ranging from 13 years old to two years old. So we've got a lot of different things going on. We're in the thick of baseball season right now. So that takes up the majority of our weekday evenings. But uh, lots of irons in the fire here at the Bruno house. So you and I have talked a lot about missions. I've had a lot of opportunities to talk about ministry and uh, that intersectionality of pastoral ministry and missions. Can we pick a different term? <laughs> no, I love that term, Alex. <laughs> That's not what that means. <laughs> the, can we say the intersection of those? <laughs> Sorry, listeners. Alex and I had this long, ongoing discussion, and that was a little bit of a cheap shot on my part. But um, uh, but anyway, where, where local church ministry and partnership and missions come together, talk us a little bit about what Hawaii taught you about those things. I know it was influential in you that there is a unique crossroads of East and West that happens in Hawaii and what that taught you about church partnership. Yeah. When most people hear about Hawaii, they think beaches and surfing and, you know, hiking and luau's, all the vacation kind of stuff. Moana, 
Lilo and Stitch. Yes, <laughs> there you go. Brady Bunch. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and no doubt there are beautiful things in Hawaii and uh, love those things and, and can't wait to get in the ocean again. But once you get past the uh, veneer of the tourist traps and the, the superficiality of vacation locales, there's a lot of hurting people and a lot of spiritual need in the islands, J- just like any place in a lot of ways. People are people. The gospel is the gospel, and uh, they need to hear the good news. But some of the unique factors there, there are so many cultures coming together. So it is a place where East meets West. It's part of the United States, but it's different than any other place you'll go in the United States. Because you have uh, about 40% Asian, 30% white, and then 30% Pacific Islander as far as ethnic makeup. So that's a different uh, makeup than what you'll find here in Minneapolis or in Pennsylvania or even in places like L.A. or Miami. It's going to be different. And then there's a number of first generation immigrants coming from Japan, China, the Philippines, South Korea, all, all sorts of places. So there's a strong Asian influence there, which affects a lot of aspects of the culture and even affects the church in different ways. There's a real sense of a kind of spirituality but there's a hesitance to get serious about that, even among many people who are parts of churches and would call themselves Christians. So lots of challenges that way. Well, continuing to hold on to their cultural identity and uh, benefit from that and their family roots and those sorts of things, but not letting that be an idol. So th- th- there are many Christians who are, you know, they're, they're Korean first and they're Christian second, or they're Samoan first or they're Christian second, or they're Portuguese first and the Christian second. So in a lot of ways, it's not different than other places. It's just kind of translated into a different key because of the unique makeup of the population there. So the second part of that question was uh, church partnerships. Again, to say that it's different than other places might be a stretch, but what is unique about Hawaii, the cost of living is so high. The cost of property is so high that many churches just can't afford a piece of property, a building. So there's a lot more uh, mobile churches, churches that mean schools, those sorts of things. And as a result of that, churches, congregations tend to be smaller. And smaller congregations often can't do as many different things, be involved in projects for evangelism, reaching the community, that sort of thing, projects for training pastors. So there's a network of churches who really saw that problem and were trying to find ways to work together to address needs that individual congregations didn't have the resources to accomplish alone. So as we were trying to do that, we were looking around and seeing, okay, who's written on this? Where are some good resources out there to help us think through this, both in the United States or internationally? And we couldn't find any good resources. So we thought we'd try to, to write something ourselves to help us and hopefully others think through uh, how churches should partner together in a biblically faithful way, but also in a strategic way. So what are some of the positive examples, but also some, what are some of the stresses that go along with that? Yeah. One positive example is the ongoing partnership to train pastors. It's taken different forms and shapes through the years while I was there, after I left, and now I'm involved from a distance. But what I've seen is uh, there are a handful of churches who are committed to training pastors and other church leaders. They don't want to ship them off to the mainland. They're leaning into some online programs. But at the end of the day, I'm of the persuasion that churches are the ones who 
equip pastors. Can you just explain sure. why yeah. there might be some reticence to send um, their best and brightest to the to these great seminaries that exist in the mainland? Why did you say that would be a negative thing? Because they don't come back. Ah. Often. I would want what, to go back to Hawaii, but what do I know? <laughs> <laughs> the, the cost of living is so high. So, uh, you know, a 25-year-old guy moves to Louisville or moves to uh, North Carolina, maybe meets a girl there, uh, realizes he can buy a house for $150,000 or he can go back home and buy a house for $750,000 for the same house. You know, they just end up staying here. Nothing necessarily wrong with that, but... uh it can be difficult for churches to send off their best and brightest and then never get them back. Thankfully, I've seen more recently a number of guys who are coming back, but it's a difficult place. And so to be able to train them there in that context and keep them there, I think, is a big advantage. So that's kind of an almost a, a, a good vignette to look at missions, because at, at the same time, yeah. when you're on the missions field, yeah, you don't want to send people back to American institutions and they never come back. So how has the church taken ownership for theological training of the next generation there? Yeah, well, I think what they've tried to do and, and are continuing to do is partner together to offer resources for helping each other train pastors to collaborate with a group of, you know, eight to 10 guys who are training for ministry, whether it's vocational ministry or or not, just being better equipped for ministry, particularly pastoral ministry, huddling up and saying, okay, we can host a course here. We can provide an instructor here. We can help financially there. And so just kind of pooling resources and offering classes, coordinating times to meet, doing things that one particular pastor or even two or three churches would have a hard time doing alone. And so that's the downside. Scott asked earlier, you know, what are some positives, but what are some potential negatives of partnering together? A pastor is called first and foremost to shepherd his flock, right? And I think uh, partnering together with other churches can be a means toward doing that, but it can also take you away from that if you're not careful. If you're spending all of your time planning events, coordinating with other churches, planning, coordinating with parachurch ministries, it can begin to pull you away from the church. Or the flip side of that is uh, some guys see that and they sense that. And so they're going to they're going to resist any kind of partnership with other churches, which I, I think can be a significant negative. And, and this is, again, where I think uh, cross-cultural settings and mission settings, international settings are most susceptible to this is because the resources are thinner in many places around the world. On the mainland in the United States, we have an abundance of resources. We can turn on the radio. We can uh, go to a Christian bookstore. We can open up our computers and have access to just an unbelievable wealth of theological, biblical resources. We have churches that have hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars. But internationally, they just don't have the resources to be able to do some of these things. So everybody's going to be spread a little thinner. So you have to be strategic with how you're using your time. So it can be a razor's edge there. But I think if we look at the New Testament in the example of Paul, he was always pushing his churches, the churches he planted and felt responsible for, towards fellowship, towards partnership together, towards unity, towards uh, banding together for the sake of the gospel. And so I think we, we need to follow that example as local churches. 
So if we can just transition, uh, when I think about you and your work and your passions, uh, church partnership in Hawaii come to mind, but also what comes to mind is, is really your heart for putting accessible resources into people's hands about biblical theology. Um, another friend of our, of our podcast and a former guest is a guy named David Joannis, who's a missionary overseas. And uh, he, he just put something on his blog recently that I think was really interesting. And I, and I, I want to just kind of set you up for this discussion on biblical theology and why it's so important um, in missions. But he was talking about the difficulty in a place like Thailand, which is, you know, 95 plus percent uh, Buddhist. Um, the culture is extremely Buddhist. It's been a Buddhist kingdom for numbers and numbers of years. But how how missions work has happened there for, for years. It's an open country. You can be a missionary in Thailand, and yet how few Thai people have come to Christ. And one of the illustrations he gives to highlight some of the challenge is dealing with worldview. And so he's talking about how John 3.16 would be interpreted from a Thai Buddhist perspective. So he starts out by just showing this idea like for God and how in the Christian world, when we hear the words for God, an image comes to mind generally, although that might be changing in the States and I'll let you speak to that in a second. But we have that concept of who God is um, that generally is derived from the Bible. But how when a Buddhist hears the term, that, that word for God, because in Buddhism there isn't a personal God, um, nothing comes to mind. Or, or maybe some of the lesser gods that are a totally different perspective and understanding than the Christian understanding and Christian worldview would provide. And then they moved on to like, so love the world. And immediately that's confusing because... Um, Buddhism teaches that sin comes from attachment, and attachment is love. And so if there is a God, then he must be weak and and too tied to things and sinful, because if God is loving, then that means he's attached. So that pr- creates a problem. And he just goes on to how breaking down the rest of that verse, his only begotten son, and whosoever believeth in him, and how every section of that verse, which is so common to our gospel proclamation in the States, um, is, is fraught with confusion and peril to a Buddhist. And so, you know, you wrote the whole story of the Bible in 16 verses and then a follow-up to that. Why is biblical theology so important to missions? And, and your book now has been translated into, do you know how many languages? Or is it just so many you've lost track? <laughs> well, it's not like dozens and dozens, five or six, I, I think. It's not but, 16. Uh, not, point, not, that's, not. that's my goal. We're not there yet. Right. And his goal is also to have 16 children. So, I mean, that's, <laughs> maybe not. No. But anyway, Chris, uh, so why is biblical theology so important to missions? And how does it address some of these problems like what we just saw uh, from this article on Buddhism. And also just to define biblical theology, because to okay. some of our Very listeners, yep. those two terms, the, the terms biblical and theology might sound redundant, but there's a difference between biblical theology and systematic theology. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe I'll take that last one first and then it can parlay into answering Scott's question. Parlay. Because, uh, Good word choice. You should be an author. Parlay. <laughs> I, I see those two words are intersecting there. That's awesome. <laughs> Go ahead. So just to, to be simple, maybe a little too simple. When I talk about biblical theology versus systematic theology it is the, the common distinction that the first distinction we need to get in our minds probably Biblical theology is not just theology that is faithful to the Bible. While we want all of our theology to be biblical, there's this subset within the the theological disciplines that we call biblical theology. That's distinct from historical theology, where we're kind of tracing out the uh, historical development of doctrine and its articulation by the Church Fathers and the Middle Ages and the Reformers and, and on and on. It's also different than systematic theology 
which tries to answer the question of what does the Bible say about any particular topic. Biblical theology is trying to trace out the big story and then key themes as they progressively develop throughout the story of Scripture. So uh, the distinction I make, biblical theology traces the revelation of truth in the story, whereas systematic theology gathers everything that the Bible says about one particular topic. So trace versus gather. So if we're thinking about biblical theology, it's tracing the big story of the Bible from creation to the fall, to the promise of redemption, to the fulfillment of that promise, to the final consummation of all things in the new creation. So creation, fall, redemption, new creation. Just tracing out that big story, helping people see that that story is the story of this universe that God created for his glory. Um, so I, I think when we enter into other cultures and perhaps even our own culture now that are not shaped by that story, we have to help people reorient themselves around that story. Because, you know, we all think in terms of story. Like all of us typically think of ourselves as the hero of our own story, at least in the West. Mm-hmm. But even outside of the West, everybody's thinking of their lives in terms of a big story. So it could be a story of random evolution and mutation that has kind of a meaningless end. The universe was, eventually the universe will no longer be, and in between anything that happens is just pure chance. Uh It could be a cyclical story, you know, of uh, reincarnation, rebirth, trying to reach uh, nirvana or some state like that. But what we're trying to do in the when we do biblical theology is help people see the linear story from creation to new creation and reorient themselves around that story. So if we just drop into a culture and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, uh, you you have to stop and answer, okay, who is God? Mm. Biblical theology helps us answer that question. Right. God is the one who created all things. Who is man? Man is God's creation who uh, was created to know God and follow him, but he fell uh, away from God in the garden. And then the story of the Bible is the story of God's work to uh, redeem mankind and redeem his whole creation through his son, Jesus. So helping people to to trace out the way the Bible tells that one big story is not just going to help them have a better sense of the Bible, but it's also going to help them have a better sense of their lives and the, the reality of the universe. So I think it's important for missions because if they don't have a sense of that story, you're not going to be able to teach them about John 3.16. Uh, you're not going to be able to do systematic theology because you won't even know what questions to ask until you have a foundation that's built in this great story of redemption. Well, we and other agencies that we know uh, the the trainings that are put out there for the missionaries largely have to do with chronological Bible storytelling, which for us at ABWE looks a lot like our good soil materials that encourage people to walk through the whole story of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation uh, sequentially and to show how all of those things culminate 
in Christ and how he is the the hero of the biblical narrative. Um, so you've already sketched out some of the reasons why it's important for us to uh, have that sort of approach going into a culture that's not familiar with uh, the the story of Scripture yet. And yet, it is inter- it is interesting that so much of our training and background is in the area of systematic theology, which seems to kind of fail us. Uh, in some ways when we start to engage with cultures that are very, very different in their view of God and eternity and these other things. Would you right. agree and, with that? And those of us who are you know, more on the theologically conservative side tend to get excited a lot about uh, systematic theology, and we start to take for granted this narrative that we've already been swimming in, uh, but we don't necessarily bring that to bear on other people. Yeah, and, and even beyond that— um, Systematic theology is a necessary and correct culminating discipline, but it's a culminating discipline. I, I think we need to do exegesis and good biblical theology before we start doing systematic theology, because what we're, what we're trying to do, at least partially in systematic theology, is ask questions that are relevant in our culture and answer, what does the Bible have to say about this particular topic? Mm. So in the the modern West, we're probably going to talk more about, you know, who are human beings, gender, sexuality, those types of issues than we had to 200 years ago. Those questions are going to be more pertinent. So as people are writing doctrinal statements, which are exercises and systematic theology, I don't know if you all have done this at IBWE, but uh, many uh, churches and Christian organizations are having to add pieces to their doctrinal statement, statements on marriage and gender and things like that, because the questions are changing as the, the culture changes. So the truth doesn't change, but the questions that we're asking need to change. So as we go to a, a different culture, different contexts, they're going to be asking different questions. Now, certainly there are always questions that are relevant across the ages. You know, some of the questions that the early church dealt with about the nature of God and the nature of Jesus and the Trinity, those types of questions are relevant no matter what culture you're entering into. But even then, the way you talk about them and the way you frame it and the way you articulate it in an understandable way is going to change. But then you go into cultures that have uh, different views of marriage. So we have different views of marriage here in the West, but maybe in, in some uh, some other cultures, you know, polygamy is still an issue. So your conversation about marriage is going to have to be different because different questions are being asked. Or there's different questions being asked about the nature of truth. There's different questions being asked about you name the issue. And we're still doing systematic theology, trying to gather everything that the Bible says about a particular issue, but it's going to look different in different cultures. So I think translating some of your standard evangelical systematic theologies into different languages is helpful, but maybe even better is training men, people in those cultures who can write systematic theologies in and for that culture, answering the questions that are most relevant to those particular uh, groups. Yeah, I like the way you're kind of defining that, because otherwise, by understanding systematic theology is answering specific cultural questions, every culture would have different questions, right? Yeah, I would think so. There's certainly going to be a a key group of questions that are always addressed, that always need to be addressed. But beyond that, as you go into different cultures, they're going to have different questions. And uh, I was talking about, you know, marriage and gender, just because we can trace that out in the West— We can see how that's changed over the last 50 Mm -hmm. years or so. So we're having to change our doctrinal statements 
to address that specifically, not because the truth has changed, but because there are pressing cultural issues that we need to address. That's a great point, because you think back to 100, 200, 300 years ago, questions of identity uh, were largely agreed upon and people weren't really wrestling with those questions. They were wrestling with a lot of other questions, which obviously made it in. And you, you look at even the early councils were wrestling with questions of the deity of Christ, which pops up occasionally, but amongst Orthodox Christians, there is an assumption that Christ is is divine and co-equal with the Father. So the, the questions change, um, and that would, would allow for even on the, on the field to understand that, that, yeah, a Buddhist will have a different question that will be prominent in his mind than what maybe the Christian missionary is, is thinking of in his or her mind. Yeah, I think that's right. And so I think that's why biblical theology translates a little easier into different cultures. Because certainly, like in, in my 16 Verses book, no doubt I'm writing it as an American in the West. I have examples in there about Barry Sanders and surfing and things like that, things that aren't going to make sense to, uh, to many Christians around the world. But uh, I hope just the, the little reports I've heard here and there is that it's understandable and helpful to believers in other cultures because it, it's tracing a story. So I, I don't have any idea how they translate my references to Barry Sanders running for a touchdown into Farsi. Or if that makes any sense, <laughs> and if that makes any sense at all to them. But I do think you know this story of God created all things. Man fell into sin. God promised to redeem through Jesus Christ, and there's coming a day where he will make all things new. I, I, I do think that story translates. So you are there at Bethlehem, and you're obviously working with students a lot. What are some of the temptations that you see with students? Is there more of a pull towards a systematic approach uh, to the neglect of a biblical approach or, or vice versa. And especially for those that are interested in cross-cultural missions, how would you encourage them to aim their theological studies? That's a great question. And, and uh, I would love to hear some of my colleagues' answers to that at some point. Maybe I'll ask them. Do you have but, them uh, in the room? Because we could get them on. Are we on speakerphone? I, I don't <laughs> is John Piper room. there with you? <laughs> he is not. He is not. Maybe I'll ask him. Um, I think one of the great things about Bethlehem College and Seminary is we, we have a lot of faculty here who love biblical theology. So a number of our guys are writing in biblical theology. You know, we have Brian Tabb just published a, a biblical theology of Revelation. Jason DeRoshi wrote a book on uh, biblical theology in the Old Testament. Andy Nassali's writing on uh, a, a number of biblical theological themes. So we have a, a good number of faculty here who are writing and thinking about biblical theology. And I, and I think that the students pick up on that. So I taught a uh, biblical theology class this last semester, and the, the students are well-versed in and appreciate biblical theology. So I, I don't see in them a desire to, you know, just skip straight to systematic theology or something like that. Um, as we think about training students for cross-cultural missions, I think having a good sense of historical theology and biblical theology are really crucial. So you can know the conversations that have happened in the past and then be aware of how this great story of redemption has informed those. But then also having a, an understanding of some of the things that we've talked about. Uh, and, and I know I've talked about that with my students, having an understanding that when you go to a different culture, you're going to be answering different questions. Right. So 
if you go in and just teach through Wayne Grudem systematic theology, helpful as that might be, might not be the best strategy for discipling a group of believers in Southeast Asia right, right. off the bat. And I, and I think our students are hearing that and understand that well. Well, that's encouraging. And I, I think for, for those who have been um, part of the movement that's put more of an emphasis on big God theology, there is a pull um, back into systematic theology and historic theology that also needs to be counterbalanced with an understanding of biblical theology and being able to unpack these narratives to someone who's hearing it all for the first time. So, Chris, thank you so much for you're, you're obviously um, a man with a lot of resources because it sounds like you're digging through your bookshelf the whole time that <laughs> we're talking to you here as your microphone's picking that up. Are there particular resources and certainly the books that you've written as well, um, but are there particular resources that you'd point our way um, for some of our listeners and also how can they uh, get more from you and what you've written? Yeah. Um, I haven't looked at that many books. I have one book in front of me I looked at, so I don't, maybe it's just uh well, whatever. Um, <laughs> as, as far as resources go, if you're brand new to biblical theology, I hope my books will be helpful. The whole story of the Bible in 16 verses, the whole message of the Bible in 16 words, just wrote those as kind of biblical theology primers to introduce people to the the discipline and the, the method to help people see that the Bible tells one big story about one God who created all things for his glory and his great plan of redemption through one Savior, Jesus Christ. And at the end of the day, that's what that's why I'm doing biblical theology, because I want people to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ from Genesis to Revelation. And so hopefully my books are doing that. There are many, many, many other resources out there. Um, Tom Schreiner wrote a book called The King and His Beauty, uh, which is a, a thicker biblical theological overview of the whole Bible. So if people are looking for a resource that they can read alongside their Bible reading, Tom has a, a nice biblical theological overview that they can read alongside of that. If people are thinking in terms of, okay, what difference does biblical theology make in the church? Uh, Michael Lawrence, who's a pastor in Portland area, he wrote a book called Biblical Theology in the Life of the Church answering questions, why does this matter? And then two other series that I'll mention, one from Crossway. They have a, a nice new series called uh, Short Studies in Biblical Theology, which is short, compact studies on a biblical theological theme or tracing some part of the story. I think the most recent one is on the kingdom of God, or there's also a new one on the covenants that are really helpful. And then if you're looking for something a little more meaty, a, a series called New Studies in Biblical Theology also known as the Silver Series, and has a number of great resources. And uh, I'm, I'm co-authoring a volume in that series that hopefully will be out next year. But there, there's a number of, of great resources out there. I could go on and on about biblical theology resources. We, we are fortunate to live in a great day where there are many resources available in the English-speaking world. Uh, an author named Graham Goldsworthy mm. would be helpful. There, yeah. Yeah, there are many, many others. Yeah, well, thank you for uh, some of those, and we'll put those in the show notes. Are we at liberty to talk about another book in the works? Well, we, we can. Um, <laughs> it's still really preliminary, but Chris, I'll let you talk about it, because then I can just deny it all. <laughs> Give you plausible yeah, deniability. Well, well, you know, the, the Scott Dunford fans of your podcast can be praying uh, for us. Uh, Scott and I are in the early stages of uh, putting together a book on missions, and uh, so Scott can, Scott's got all the missions expertise. So I'm, I'm just fo following along behind him. But the, the goal would be 
a resource that creates a, a little biblical theology of missions and, and thinking towards what the Bible has to say about this uh, great task of missions and moving from biblical theology to practical resources for the local church, key questions to answer. So a one-stop shop for uh, everything you know need to know about missions. <laughs> wow. That's a, we're going to have to <laughs> convince the publisher that it needs to be four times as long. and One-stop uh, shop. And at least one different author than is currently in it, because I don't think I know the answers to those things. But, <laughs> no, it is a fun project we're working on. And and uh, if you promise to, if, as listeners, you promise to buy 10 copies each, um, I think the publisher will be really thrilled to, to uh, go ahead and give it the green light. <laughs> and then we'll have and then we'll have 30 copies sold. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we dream big around here. We do. That's good. We do. That's right. We dream That's big great. for God. And Chris, you're working on a couple other projects as well. Um, yeah, I mentioned I'm co-authoring a book in the New Studies in Biblical Theology series that's uh, – Hopefully we'll be out next year uh, looking at stories of Israel in the New Testament. So how do the New Testament writers tell the story of Israel? And that uh, that's really a helpful window into how the apostles and hopefully Jesus himself were doing biblical theology. So if, if the goal of biblical theology is to tell the story of the Bible, we can look at places like Stephen's speech in Acts 7 or the, the Hall of Faith, as it's commonly called, in Hebrews 11, which is really just tracing the history of Israel, looking at how God's promise of redemption unfolded and our place in that story. So that, that's front burner. I, I've got another book, hopefully, that I'll be able to work on this summer on James and Paul and justification, and then a few other smaller essays and things, and then the Great Missions Project. So that, those are the kind of front burner things for me right now. Awesome. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us here today. And this has been helpful and encouraging for me. And we look forward to continuing to read more stuff from you and, and all these other projects that are going on. So thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Alex and Scott. Enjoyed it. If you want to get more great content on theology, missions, and practice, go to missionspodcast.com. And while you're there, make sure that you subscribe in iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite listening platform. And please make sure that you also give us an honest review and a five-star rating. And don't forget to be sending your questions to alex at missionspodcast.com, along with any other ideas for future episodes. And until next time, thank you for joining us.